From Gimlet Media, this is The Knives, a Black culture podcast brought to you by Blackness's biggest fans. I'm Eric Eddings. When I say the words conscious rap, what comes to mind? Well, a lot of folks think about artists like Public Enemy. Still so good after all these years. You know, or you might think about Talib Kweli. And in 2019, you're absolutely thinking about Kendrick Lamar. At its simplest, we think of conscious rap as rap with a political message. You know, its lyrics do things like highlight the realities of life in the hood. You know, it calls out our government and politicians. Or sometimes they simply dream of a world where Black people aren't subjugated. And while it's one of the oldest subgenres in hip-hop, it's also one of the most divisive. With many folks feeling like conscious rap or the rappers who make it are corny and kind of inauthentic. But recently, I heard a story about the history of conscious rap that really surprised me. It went back to the early days of hip-hop and laid out how conscious rap came to be and the forces that tried to suppress its rise. It comes to us from a new WNYC podcast, The Stakes. The Stakes tells the stories behind what it really takes to create social change in healthcare, the environment, pop culture, so much more. I'm going to play the Stakes story about conscious rap here in a minute. But first, I am happy to say that we've got the reporter of this story, Christopher Johnson, right here in the studio with me right now. Christopher, welcome. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to be here at long last. Yeah, I can yeah. check this off my my little my list, you know uh, what I mean? My bucket too. list. <laughs> uh, but it's exciting for me to have you here as a fellow hip-hop head. And I'm just curious. So, like, you know, when I think about conscious rap, a lot of different things comes comes to mind. Uh-huh. And I'm curious, what does conscious rap mean to you? It's really what pulled me into hip-hop music. Uh-huh. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I grew up around go-go music and yeah. the D.C. punk rock scene, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. so it was around that time that someone slipped me a tape of Eric B. and Rakim. Don't sweat the technique. And that, for me, was my entry point into hip-hop music as music that was like mine. This is my cassette, the first album by Eric B. and Rakim. And they're talking, a, they have a kind of consciousness in them, a yeah. kind of positivity. Now I know a lot of his message was shaped by the 5%ers and the yeah. 5% Nation. For me, a lot of that music was a kind of affirmation of mm. my blackness and my black self. It helped me think about where I was in space, especially mm. in this place called America, yeah. you know, and around a lot of my white peers, this music gave me some grounding. Like, you have a right to be upset. You have a right yeah. to be angry. You have a right to be confused. But also let us provide you a roadmap for thinking about what it means to be, at the time, a black boy, a yeah. black man in this culture. And so... It was certainly a lot of the political messaging, 
but it was also a lot of the identity stuff too. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's actually very similar to me. Like I grew up, uh, I grew up in Memphis, and so you know there was a ton of hip hop around, a lot of like three six, and well, it takes you in a very different direction. But uh, <laughs> but you know, there's a ton of like Memphis rap. But I'll never forget my uh, my cousin. He like handed me down his car. And it literally, he left like a bunch of tapes in the uh, glove compartment. One of them was Public Enemy. It takes a nation of millions uh-huh. to hold you back. And from there, you know, I kind of went down this rabbit hole. And I was just like, wait, this just sounds so different mm-hmm. uh, from everything else that I'm hearing on the radio. And kind of in a similar way, it really challenged me. Like it challenged me to kind of think about you know, this the the other types of rap that I was hearing that was maybe like kind of describing what I was seeing. But I felt like a lot of the conscious rap that I was listening to was kind of challenging me to think about like, why is this happening and what mm-hmm. should be happening? Uh, and it was such a like a really kind of cool experience to feel like, like almost like you're rediscovering this genre from the inside. Yeah, and a lot of that music too, like um, from that first wave of conscious rap music is the way I describe it in the yeah. piece. From that first wave, a lot of it was emphasizing, kind of to the point you're making, like even the song You Must Learn. I believe that if we teach in history, deal with straight up facts, no mystery. Teach the student what needs to be taught. Right, this idea that you go get it, yeah. black man, black woman. You go get the information. You go discover your own history. You go find your story. And we can kind of observe the the prison system and the education system and the cops whooping our asses and all that kind of yeah. stuff. But it's bigger than all of this. Yeah. And that's a great point. Like, and and your story uh, that we're telling today uh, actually gets into that history of this first wave of conscious rap, and also like th- those forces that really try to kind of stop it in its tracks. So throughout the story, we're going to hear you, and we're going to hear you in conversation with the host of the stakes, Kai Wright. Shouts to Kai Wright. Yes, but the story starts with a rapper whose name I really really hope it's very familiar. He was one of my favorite rappers as a kid. And real talk, he should also be celebrated for his truly iconic use of headwear and sunglasses. Mic check one, two. Kumo D. <laughs> I was born a Leo rockstar. <laughs> you hear folks talk about old school rap. Well, Kumo D started rhyming in 1977. <laughs> this is when hip-hop was still this punkish, insular, party and art scene in New York's underground. I come from the school of hip-hop where it's literally two turntables and microphones and no routines or whatever ahead of time. So you really had to earn your audience Hip-hop is street music. Right, so rappers were bound to start talking about what was happening in their neighborhoods, on the streets. Exactly. And in the early 1980s, hip-hop started zooming in on social problems. Like the rest of the country, New York was crawling out of two national recessions. There was a double-digit spike in unemployment. At one point, nearly one in five Black New Yorkers was jobless. And then, in 1982, here comes Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five with their classic, The Message. Got a bum education, double-digit inflation, can't take the train to the job, there's a strike at the station. I think that was the first time we even saw hip-hop in a space that was outside of just partying. So starting to talk about things in the neighborhood was something that was bubbling, but it wasn't a lot of pop success with that. And then, in 1988, Public Enemy dropped their second album, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. This is considered one of the greatest rap records ever. 
militant, pro-black, anti-crack hip-hop, peak conscious rap. Once everybody saw that it could be successful, then it became the best of both worlds. You could have the pop and commercial success and still talk something conscious. So if you were a valid artist, you would have to have something that dealt with some kind of consciousness. And there was a lot to be conscious about, right? I mean, this was the mid-1980s. Crack cocaine is raging. Mm -hmm. There's all the addiction. There's all the war on drugs that's coming out of that and death and everything in its wake. Yeah, so this is 1988. Cool Modi goes on this big tour. It was called the Dope Jam Tour. And it was a headline by myself, Rakim, and Dougie Fresh. Biz Marquis performed at Dope Jam. So did KRS-One, Ice-T, Big Daddy Kane, all artists who either were or would soon become some of the biggest names in rap music. We literally were having, you know, I guess a kid in a candy store kind of fun, laughing and telling each other what we loved about each other. So it was that kind of summer. Yo, Fab Five Freddy, welcome to Yo, MTV Raps. I got a mega posse chilling with me right now. Dope Jam makes its last stop on Saturday, September 10th, and it's booked at an arena about 25, 30 miles east of Manhattan. We're getting ready to go in the Nassau Coliseum where the Dope Jam tour is getting ready to get cold in effect. We got Hip-hoppers came from all over New York for Dope Jam. Ann Carly was one of them. As an executive for Jive Records, Ann went to a lot of hip-hop shows. She knew this crowd, mostly Black and Latino, young and mad stylish. People dressed up. You wore your best clothes. That was where you, you know, wore your gazelle glasses and, you know, your best coat and your gold chain and everything like that. As Anne headed into the Coliseum, she starts to get her first sense of what this night was about to turn into. I saw a bunch of older guys that I was pretty sure weren't fans. And I actually said to my two colleagues, something's off here. You guys be careful. 10,000 heads packed this Coliseum. And right when the show was really getting hot, Kumo D, who's sort of backstage, you know, but he can still see the crowd, he sees these fights breaking out all over the Coliseum. There's a posse of guys running around, snatching chains, literally scoping and looking and tapping each other and saying, there's a girl by herself right there. Uh, We're going to go take her pocketbook and, you know, do what they're going to do. So that's where the, the violence started very early in the night. One guy had saw me with my gold on, so he reached for my bracelet. So when I turned, I grabbed him. A fan later told a film crew about all the madness that went down that night. Once I grabbed him, a whole crowd rushed behind me. There were just bodies flying at me. And I didn't realize I was stabbed until, you know, it was all over. But by this time, my bracelet was gone, three chains were gone, my gold watch was gone. When I go into the first aid office, it's crowded. You know, full of people that had been stabbed and cut. And Carly ran for cover. I ended up with Dougie Fresh's mom and grandmother, and we were kind of hiding underneath some folded-up bleachers, trying to wait until things kind of calmed down and cleared out. By the end of the show, a dozen people had been injured. The worst part of this, a 19-year-old Bronx kid was stabbed in the heart and killed. But I did hear that somebody died from the audience, and I'm like, wow, to go to a concert and lose your life is absolutely ridiculous. The past year. But first, let's take a look at the news. The most disturbing story of the week was actually a recurring one, the alleged cause and effect connection between rap music and concert violence. Last Saturday, think- one of the guys who was at Dope Jam, he's reading the coverage, and he is fuming. Uh, my name's Nelson George. I'm a writer and a filmmaker. 
Nelson was the black music editor for Billboard magazine. This particular incident really, um, really irked me, and I remember the coverage of it really got me. I just remember calling a few people, thinking maybe there's a way to do something about it. I remember speaking with Ann Carley. Nelson called me up and said, can you believe these headlines are blaming the music? And I said, Nelson, I was there. And so we thought, what can we do? Because it's not the music. The fans didn't just erupt into do violence by the music. Nelson wanted to set the record straight. It was time for rappers to define the problem, he would later write, and defend themselves. How do we organize a community of hip-hop to do a couple of things? You know, counteract the media narrative that rap equated to violence, speak about the criminal element at rap shows, and not to criminalize the entire audience, which is what was happening. So Nelson and Ann started recruiting a small, influential group of industry people. They huddled at Ann's office in a New York City brownstone. You know, that first meeting, we didn't have enough chairs. So people were just sitting on the floor and, you know, and talking. They called themselves the Stop the Violence Movement. And their goal was to use rap's growing influence and celebrity to try to counteract some of this violence. And the group actually got inspiration from a pop song. There comes a time when we heed a certain call. We Are the World had come out just a few years earlier. It features some of the biggest artists of the era in chorus on a charity record. Nelson, Ann Carley, and the rest of their organization decided that they would make a We Are the World for hip-hop. It would be an all-star track featuring rap's leading voices, sending a unified message both to fans and to critics. There was no precedent, really, for something like this. Certainly not in hip-hop. There wasn't a track record of these kind of records being made, especially one that had so many artists from different groups. There were people that I called in the industry who said, forget about it. You're never going to be able to get this done. It's never going to work out. Rappers, forget about it. But the skeptics were wrong. This project took off. Everybody wanted in. Some of the biggest, most popular names in rap got on board, including KRS-One. He was a key member of the Stop the Violence movement, and he laid down the song's first verse. Well, today's topic, self-destruction. It really ain't the rap audience that's bugging. It's one or two suckers, ignorant brothers, trying to rob and steal from one another. They called the song Self-Destruction. It was a who's who of late 80s rap. You remember Dougie Fresh, yeah. right? MC Light, yes. Chuck D. And Kool Modi. He dropped probably the most iconic verse on this song. Back in the 60s, our brothers and sisters were hanged. How could you gangbang? I never ever ran from the Ku Klux Klan, and I shouldn't have to run from a black man, because that. So when I said back in the 60s, our brothers and sisters were hanged, how can you gangbang? I, I never ever ran from the Ku Klux Klan. I shouldn't have to run from a black man. It seemed like it was very, very poignant in terms of the irony of having to band together because of the Klan, to band together, and now we're running from each other is ridiculous to me. And as I recall, this song had some critics too, though, right? I mean, not everybody liked it. Absolutely. I mean, some folks argued that it promoted this idea of black-on-black crime. Right. Basically blaming black folks for the violence and the neglect in their communities without a real mention of structural racism. Which is a fair point. Yeah, and Nelson accepts that feedback. He accepts that point. But he still sees something bigger. When I look back on it, I think it's an amazing testament 
to the openness of so many artists to participate. I felt like it set a certain example for what the possibilities of hip-hop were. You know, it didn't change the world. It didn't stop crack from being sold. It didn't stop people from trying to rob people at rap concerts. But there was a sense of uh, hip-hop had a role in talking about what was going on. And hip-hop also kind of speaking up for itself about what was going on in the community and what the role of the culture was in that. And from about this point, there's this real blossoming of conscious hip-hop from artists like KRS-One, like Public Enemy. And there was X-Clan, for instance, you know, which just was the truth. And I can remember, like, that being a space where I could just be, like, Black Pride. That's what I'm doing. African, very African. Come and step in Brothers Temple, see what's happening. You'll taste the bass flow coming from a zero. You know, this culture just became saturated with all of these different expressions of Pan-Africanism, Black Pride. Our freedom of speech is freedom of death. We got the and power. Black Empowerment. Fight the power! After the break, conscious rap faces a backlash that nearly causes its demise. And that backlash, strangely enough, begins with a rock song. Welcome back. So before the break, Christopher was telling us about the ascension of conscious rap. But that steep rise was about to come to an end. Here's Christopher. So to figure out what happened to this first generation of conscious rap music, I called up this guy, Dan Charnas. What happened, starting in around 93 and 94, was the beginning of real mainstreaming of hip-hop. There are two major radio stations, Power 106 in L.A. We have a liftoff. Power 106. Yeah. Oh, it's go time, man. Justin And Hot 97 in New York. The Hot 97 Summer Mix Weekend. We're in the mix. Keep your radios locked or listen on the Where Hip Hop Lives at. Both are owned by the same company, and that company decided in the early 90s to make them all hip hop all the time. And at first, the music is pretty diverse. But the stuff that succeeds is the stuff that really conforms to this kind of upwardly mobile, aspirational capitalist theme. And because now major labels are involved, the search for the different stuff becomes sublimated to the search for the same stuff. So what he's talking about really is this is an example of the way space just in general is narrowing, right, for different kinds of rap because it's getting commodified. Exactly. And there's another part of this conscious rap story, too. It goes back to 1991. It's an event that most folks just refer to as Rodney King. Yeah. The three police officers facing felony criminal charges were among a group of 15 who stopped a 25-year-old black man last Saturday night, then beat him, kicked him, and clubbed him, unaware that an amateur photographer was recording the incident on videotape. You cannot overstate the emotion of this moment for black people. I mean, today we're used to seeing these videos of the awful police violence, but I, I think this was the first. It's certainly the first in my memory. Mm-hmm. Same. It looks sadistic. Yeah, it's painful to watch. It confirmed everything that people in the street had been saying about how cops were just showing up in our neighborhoods like a band of thugs, mm-hmm. and especially the LAPD. Like an occupying force. Like an occupying force. And then they get away with it. Like a year later, they get away with it. They're acquitted. They're acquitted. 
and LA explodes. As the numbers swelled, they suddenly, about a half an hour ago, just got more militant and started burning things and started advancing. And as I said, they regrouped to the back and then just all together with that big knot of people. I would say at least a thousand people here now. And then not long after the LA riots, this big controversy erupts over a song. Not a rap song, but the fallout would have these big implications for conscious rap music. In 1992, in the middle of the presidential election, a police union publication in Dallas, Texas, a writer there, found a tape of Ice-T's heavy metal group, Body Count. This is Ice-T, the rap star from Los Angeles. He and a bunch of his friends had formed this metal band, and they put out a song called Cop Killer. Right. Cop Killer! Cop Killer mentions Rodney King. It mentions Daryl Gates, who was L.A.'s police chief at the time. You remember this song? Very much. Okay. Very much. What do you I remember mean, about this song? This blew up the world. Like, people were angry. Especially cops. And white people in general. And this was a Warner Brothers slash Time Warner product. So the editor, writer, listens to this song and uh, writes a piece about it, transcribes the lyrics, and also notes that Time Warner not only owns Warner Brothers records and Warner Brothers pictures, but they also own local cable companies all over the country and Texas. So police across Texas join forces, and they launch a boycott of all things Time Warner. And they're soon joined by police unions all over the country, and that leads to a nationwide outcry of these sort of more socially conservative forces against Time Warner. How could Time Warner be encouraging this kind of violence against police? And Dan says because of Rodney King— Police across the U.S. were on the defensive. And so this they saw as a chance to sort of get the moral upper hand. You know, how police are the victims. Police are being persecuted. And it puts great pressure on the new chair of Time Warner to try to defend this. But very soon it became apparent that the Warner labels were going to be asked to provide a lot more oversight. No more surprises. The fallout from the cop killer controversy made conscious rap public enemy number one. After the break, we see what conscious rap had to do to survive. Welcome back. So, Christopher, it it seems like what happened was Ice-T's cop killer comes out And the resulting boycott spooks the suits at Time Warner. They're afraid they're going to keep losing money if they keep putting out conscious rap records like this. Mm. Is that about right? Well, in all all fairness, they they tried to hold out. And Mm. they did hold out for a while. I mean, they pushed back, arguing First Amendment, and they really, really kind of tried to hold the fence. But eventually the pressure became too strong. So Time Warner, I think their concern really is... It's not so much that they're trying—I don't think that they're, like, consciously trying to shut down conscious rap. Sure. It's just, as Kai says, there are these kinds of market forces mm. that seem to run against 
the particular kind of expression that is political, confrontational messaging in hip-hop or in other kinds of music as well. But certainly, it's hip-hop that becomes the focus of this because it's heavy metal music made by a rapper. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that they were concerned, but I think that they were trying to strike a balance between— I can't believe I'm trying to be fair to record labels. (laughs) It's Um, an awkward position, right? (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. I mean, I think that the concern was the bottom line, for sure. And that's not surprising with a company like Time Warner or any other company. The concern was the bottom line. They were really sort of caught off guard. And as I lay out in the piece, it's because of the confluence of all these different events. The Rodney King stuff, this cop killer song, and... They were just sort of unprepared yeah. for the backlash. But what's interesting is that this was actually happening around the same time music, like rap music itself, was also starting to evolve. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like this, the 90s, the tastes change and our tastes evolve for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. This is the Absolutely. next decade after Reaganomics had kind of, you know, eviscerated. Yeah. There was this Blown war yeah. on black life in the 80s. It continues into the 90s. You get the Clinton crime bill, all this mass incarceration, the consequences of crack. And so a lot of these rappers are still kind of wrestling with that. Yeah. You get groups like Wu-Tang. Which is really, really interesting, right? You have Wu-Tang inserting in a lot of their very fucked up messaging, yeah. inserting some... Some consciousness, some, some political themes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Homicide's illegal and death is a penalty. One justifies the homicide when he dies in his own iniquity. It's the master of the mantis rapture coming out. And some of that is just, it's always going to be baked into rap music. Yeah, but it did kind of struggle to find, like, main stream hits. Interestingly enough, the direction it was evolving, you know, was kind of becoming a lot more about money mm-hmm. and wealth. For sure. You have the rise of, like, bad boy. Yeah. You know, and shifting away from, like, the biggie bad boy to a much more kind of blingy, flashy bad boy. Yeah. And then, not to, like, poop on the South, but then you have, like, the Dirty South sound and all that kind of stuff that really is just pushing, I mean, they had a song, Bling Bling, exactly. like, pushing that idea of, like, we're getting money in these streets. Yeah, and we want to show it off. Yeah, it's exactly. about the showing off. Yeah, like to your point, even rappers who were thought of as making like music that wasn't conscious at all, like there are also like artists who I feel like were just kind of doing it a lot more subtly. Mm-hmm. Like you know, yeah. like like Outkast, for example. Outkast is a great example. You know, they are like they made really popular music. Music that people love, they sometimes dance to, you know, they, of course they listen to. But though, that music was really, like, there were all these amazing themes of, mm-hmm. you know, of of kind of what what life was like in the hood. Like, just like mm-hmm. all these kind of different things. They were doing that at the same time as this music was becoming really popular. But it's funny you talking about Outkast as an example of, like, a group that mashed this up. Yeah. There's this perfect line, but I think it's on equipment. It is the song Equimini. Mm-hmm. And they say... Now question, is every nigga with dreads for the cause? Right, so in that way, they're doing this critique of the image of consciousness versus what's really real. Exactly. What is actual consciousness, really trying to drill down. So we're breaking through that first layer of like pumping your fist, growing out your dreadlocks, African medallions, all that. Mm. What is consciousness really? Yeah. You know what I mean? What does it really mean to love your community? What does it really mean to love your blackness? What does it really mean to like look out for each other and take care of your family, raise your kids and 
you know, stand for something. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't kind of thought of as with this 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 label that we had applied to it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting because, like, for me, I feel like conscious rap didn't really shake that stigma really actually until Kanye really became popular. Like, I look at Kanye's rise, like, if you look at early through the wire— in addition to uh, like Jesus Walks and things like this. And through the wire, his first single, he's like, he's like, you know, what if somebody from the shy that was ill got a deal? Uh, but he wasn't talking about Coke and Birds. It was more like spoken word. Talking about Coke and Birds, it was more like spoken word. Except he's really putting it down. And he explained the story about how blacks came from glory and what we need to do in a game. Good tool, bad night, right place, wrong time. You know, for me, I felt like a lot of what he was saying there is he like he wants to go back and kind of own that that message, that conscious message, that political message. And now I feel like, you know, I mean, and there's some some time that passes here, but now I feel like we kind of almost don't need as much of the conscious label because it's it's kind of like baked into just most popular music nowadays. Like I think about like YG. He's making a song like Fuck Donald Trump, you know? You've got uh, Vince Staples, you know, Kendrick Lamar, like people who are making music that is so, you know, rich in in political and conscious thought. And like they are they are the popular artists of our day. And like that that to me shows that like this kind of I don't know. I I personally like this version where that label isn't useful because it just feels like things are more intermeshed. That that uh, the way we think about things, the you know the the pride that you can feel, the the ability to just go out and dance, like all those things are are kind of happening at the same time, and they have been in other ways. You know, sometimes it used to feel like different tracks, mm-hmm. uh, but now some, I feel like it's happening on the same song, which is it's kind of exciting. To your point, like the conscious label isn't necessary in a lot of ways. It never really was necessary, but it's yeah. certainly not necessary now. Because, and it's also meaningless in mm-hmm. some ways because there are artists who flow in and out of it so seamlessly yeah. in a way. That, that, what does that mean to them? Right. There, there certainly were artists who flowed in and out of it, but you think about your big like tent poles mm-hmm. like, like KRS-One, yeah. Public Enemy, those cats were so in your face, and now it's less so. Mm-hmm. With the exception of like, This Is America, that yeah. video anyway was pretty in your face. A little bit. Yeah, a little lightweight, <laughs> lightweight. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for coming by and sharing this awesome story and also just like chatting. My pleasure, brother. My pleasure. It was, it was so cool kind of hearing this history. Like, honestly, it just uh, really connected those dots of, of that, that first wave of this music that, you know, became so popular. It meant so much. Yeah, man. It meant so a lot thanks. to me. Yeah, well, thank you. This story came to us from the Stakes Podcast. So if you liked it, subscribe to the Stakes on Spotify or wherever you are listening to this right now. The Stakes is a production of WNYC Studios and the newsroom of WNYC. It's hosted by Kai Wright, and this episode was reported by Christopher Johnson. For a full list of credits from this Stakes episode, check our show notes. The Nod is produced by me, Eric Eddings, with Brittany Luce and Kate Parkinson Morgan. Our senior producer is Sara Abdurrahman. We are edited by Sarah Saracen. Engineering by Cedric Wilson. Our theme music is by Khalid Beats.